listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So if you would please uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8. We will be in verses 31 through 59, so the end of the chapter. So John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. There's an article that was written on the website adoption.org by a father who adopted, kind of ironically, we didn't, I didn't know what scripture Adam was going to be reading, but it was a good scripture. You're not Adam, you're Matt. Hey, hey, not Adam. And, uh, about us being adopted and calling our father Abba. So his, his, um, his section was about what it means to be an adoptive father. And I just am reading a couple paragraphs from the middle of his article. It says, being an adoptive father means raising another man's kids. From a man's point of view, there is no greater joy than to have a child to leave a legacy to pass down the values and principles that his father passed down to him. There is also a particular pride a man takes when he has a son, especially when his son looks like him, has the same mannerisms and the same voice and habits. Having a daughter is also a beautiful thing. To see your wife's beauty in your little girl is quite a blessing. Seeing the one you love in the face of your little girl is a sweet thing. But what happens when you adopt? Your children don't look like you. These children never will. Your adoptive sons, for instance, look like another man. I decided a long time ago that was okay. I decided that it was my mission in life to care for other people's children. I decided that if I couldn't pass down my genes and my rugged good looks, I would pass down my values, my love, my resources, and my faith to my kids. I would provide each with consistency. Stability, connection, affection, and a love that my children may not have had otherwise. I am proud of the fact that if my children can't inherit my physical qualities, each will inherit the Williams legacy. Before Christ saved our souls, your soul, you and I looked, spoke, and acted like our Father. And by Father, I do not mean our Heavenly Father. I mean, as Paul writes in the New Testament, our Father, the devil. The devil was never to be your father. But when sin entered into the world, we became his children. We desired him. We wanted to win his affections. We wanted to impress him. We wanted to be noticed by him. We wanted to be loved by him. We were enticed by Him, and we loved it dearly. But then one day, by the grace of God, we woke up. We saw that we were running to a father who was ultimately a liar, an abuser, a fraud. And by God's grace, we were put up for adoption and given a good and perfect family with a good and perfect father. So like the father in this article, the father in heaven had a son who looked like their old father, had their old mannerisms, the father's old way of thinking, acting, numerous wounds from abuse, and a host of other problems. The thought of being around now a new loving father would be too much, sometimes too good to be true. It could cause a lot of questioning on the part of a child. As a Christian, we could be like, Father, you you can't possibly love me. I'm all banged up. I'm abused. I'm no good. I have the markings of my old father. But here's where the father in this article and the heavenly father differ among countless other ways. The father in heaven is able to take his adopted children and shape their character, actions, words, and looks to be just like his. This father has the power has the patience and the love to take his own children and then turn them into true sons and daughters. Sons and daughters who just don't carry his name only, but look like him in every single way. And so we'll see today 
the marks of a true disciple. And the marks of a true disciple are ultimately the marks of the Father. The marks of a true disciple are the marks of the Father. So we'll see three different marks in this passage of a true disciple. The first is freedom in verses 31 through 38. The second mark is truth in verses 39 through 47. And the third mark is rejoicing in verses 48 through 59. Freedom, truth, and rejoicing. And for you kiddos who might be kind of drawing pictures today while you're sitting here and and listening and so forth, I have one really good picture I think might help in this. Is that if you could draw a picture of a jail, right, with the bars, draw a picture of a jail, and then draw the prisoner now out of the jail, no longer in the jail, right? And outside of the jail, celebrating, a big party, a lot of happiness, maybe their hands in the air, you know, just really joyful that they're no longer in jail anymore. Does that make sense? Kids? Anybody with me? Oh, I got head nods. They're already drawn. Okay, we got a hand raised there. I see that hand. I see that hand. (laughs) The mark of freedom, verses 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? We'll read the rest in a moment. So this belief, the Jews who had believed Jesus. Jesus had just given this amazing sermon about Him being the light of the world. right? And this is done during the Feast of Tabernacles where He talked about Himself being the living waters but also being the light of the world. And this being done in conjunction with the ceremonies that are taking place. The offering of the water and now the lighting of the temple. And so Jesus uses these beautiful illustrations as opportunity to speak the truth. And He does so in the temple. And there are Jews who do not believe Him, but there are those who do believe in Jesus. But we'll see, as we've seen before, this distinction in belief. You have what I would say is a belief in Jesus versus a belief on Jesus. A belief in Jesus is that This belief is the core of your belief. Everything else that is believed is conditioned by what Jesus says. There is no compromising of Jesus' word or picking and choosing which of His word you're going to hold on to or get rid of. All other words, all other beliefs, all other things are subject to Jesus' word. That's what it means to believe in or to abide in His word. And so belief in Jesus' words means that you do abide in Him, meaning you remain in Him. You endure with Him. You persevere in them. You hold on to them as though they are everything because they are everything. They are the source of life. And belief in Jesus means that you are truly a disciple of His, which also means there are those who are not truly a disciple or false disciples of His. And so that being a disciple is not just limited to the twelve who follow Him around. This also shows that you can be called a disciple, but inwardly, you're not a true disciple. Outwardly the disciple, inwardly not. Judas Iscariot, for example. And so if you abide in Jesus' Word, it results in this. Knowing the truth, and then the truth will set you free. A belief on Jesus is a believing in Jesus with conditions. There's conditions. You you have a core belief, and Jesus is just kind of like an added to that core belief. Something that might complement your belief in some way. The belief is in Jesus is using the parts of what Jesus says that seems to be helpful to your core beliefs while throwing out the other parts that seem to contradict it. These particular Jews 
held a belief of believing on Jesus, not in Him. They were good with Jesus. They were believing in Him until His words came against their core belief. As soon as their core beliefs were challenged by His words, then all of a sudden, they were against Him. They were never with Him from the beginning. And their core belief is this argument. We are children, spiritual children of Abraham. God's chosen people. We are already free. So Jesus answers them in 35, 34. Excuse me. Truly, truly. Pay attention, He says. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus confronts their core beliefs with the abiding words of truth. This is an unapologetic statement that he's making, this truly, truly. This enslavement is, dis- is defined by the practice of sin. Not talking about committing a sin here or there, but talking about making your whole life about sin. Practicing sin. Enslaved to sin. That's a very unique and important distinction. And so those who are in practice of sin are slaves to sin. And the life of a slave is always in and out of a home. Not having any ownership in the home whatsoever, nor say in when or if that slave would be sold off. But the son, the rightful heir of that home, always stays. He is the master of that slave, and he has the power to sell that slave off, enslave more, or to set that slave free. The Son in this story is none other than Jesus. The Messiah. The One with ultimate authority. The One with ultimate power. Mastery over those who are enslaved to sin. And He uses, willingly uses and chooses to take His power and set those who are enslaved to sin free. Which is why He is able to say, therefore, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so Jesus shows these Jews who are here, you are not free. You are still enslaved to sin. You are offspring of Abraham. I'll give that to you. That's true in part. You are a Jew. You are a practicing Jew and you are of the offspring of Abraham. But here's the problem. You seek to kill the son who sets free. That's a problem. Therefore, His words are not abiding in you. The words of Jesus are not abiding in them. They are not true disciples. And Jesus' argument is further. I do what the Father has shown me. Again, this is all over the Gospel of John. I'm not speaking on my own accord. I'm not doing freely what I want to do. I'm saying what the Father says. I'm doing what the Father has shown me. But let me make another distinction Jesus does to these Jews. I do what my Father has shown me. You do what your Father has shown you. This is the implication of their father, the devil. And make note of this as well. John's Gospel, John is the evangelist. His goal in writing this is not only to get an accurate account of Jesus' life and ministry, but he's evangelizing. He's sharing the good news, and he's sharing the good news with Jews. The point of sharing this story is not to belittle the Jew. Hey, look at you, you dummy. You had the Messiah right in front of you. Why didn't you know? And just to kind of slap them upside the head. But his his idea was to evangelize them. To give them a clear distinction of the markings between a true and a false disciple. His hope is that they would be won over by the Gospel. Not condemned. There's this notion that some of us, because we grow up in a Christian culture, it's easy for us to just hear and know about Jesus. That's true in part. 
But if we look at this through the lens of how salvation actually works, it does not depend on whether or not you're born a Muslim or in a Muslim context or a Christian context. As you see with the Jews, they were Jews raised in a Jewish context, supposed to understand the Messiah when they saw Him, and they were still blind to Him. And so I say, regardless of where you are on the planet or what culture you're raised in, sin is ultimately what blinds you to Jesus. And I'm not discounting the need to go to unreached people groups who are not in close proximity to a Bible or a church like Pamela's friend that she spoke about earlier. I'm not saying that, but what I'm getting at is it's not the culture or proximity that saves you, but it's God's grace. And it's, it's not just the Muslim context or the lack of Bibles nearby that blinds people. It is their sin. That's the problem. It could be sin that is masquerading in our city as Christianity. Just like these Jews were enslaved to sin, masquerading as God's chosen people. I listened to a sermon by R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, and he talked about the difference between profession of faith and possession of faith. In our culture, we have a lot of professions of faith. That's a lot of, it could be the believing on Jesus. Yeah, I don't want to go to hell. Yeah, I'll... I'll consider Him my Lord and Savior. I will respond to the altar call. I'll get a Bible. I'll go to Sunday school. I'll do all these things. I'll pray to Him. There's this profession of Him. But the question is, do the words of Jesus abide in Him or her? And this is where the possession of faith. This is the true mark of abiding. It's everything you want. Everything that you need. You don't just profess Him. You live Him. You, you know that you have the light of the world inside of you. you, have, you, are, you the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your soul. And so what I think we need to do is that we, here in Springfield, we need to humbly posture ourselves like John and evangelize this Christian community and show them the distinctive marks of an abiding disciple. I'm not saying we ignore any other mission. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, here we are in Springfield, 2021. It's really easy for us to just be complaining and to be frustrated with Christian nationalism and those things. And I get it. It's, it's really damning to the church. I get it. And it's really easy to just poke fun at people who grow up in this culture, right? But what if we were like John here and had a desire for our community, those who may be professing as opposed to possessing, for them to know the salvation that Christ brings? As we've been reading in our life groups through the the book of Romans, if you noticed in Romans chapter 9, in the first couple verses, Paul says these words in verses 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What Paul is saying is, I'd be willing to trade my salvation for the sake of my Jewish brothers and sisters to know Christ. Do we have such an anguish in our own hearts for the people around us? For the people in Springfield? For the lost Christians in Springfield? I asked the question in our life group. I said, have have any of you ever felt this way? I said, I can't recall ever feeling this sort of anguish. Maybe I have and I just can't remember. But I, I have not felt this sort of anguish for my own people in this city. And that's convicting. It's easy to turn our nose up to this community. Easy to, easy to judge it. But what would it be? What would, be it, what would it be like, can't even talk, if we had sorrow and anguish in our soul for those in this city? And in particular, those who think they're Christians but are not. Christian, 
you and I are free because your Father in heaven and His Son Jesus are free. And they have the power to set you free as they are free. The mark of freedom as a disciple isn't just for you alone. You get to be like your Father. This is how the Father shapes you to be like Him. He is free. He's never been enslaved to anything at any time. But He brings you into His world, into the freedom that He has. It is now yours. So you are free then from the enslavement to sin. It doesn't mean you won't sin. It doesn't mean you won't accidentally commit sin or even intentionally commit sin. But what he is saying is you will no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul mentions that in Romans. You're no longer under enslaved to sin, but now you're enslaved to grace, to freedom. And more than that, when you do sin, you have free access to eternal to an eternal supply of grace, forgiveness, mercy. You hear that? When you do sin, you have an advocate. Someone who comes to your defense. You have grace that is just poured out over you. That is what it means to be free. Those who do not abide in the Word of Christ, they are still enslaved to sin. And they are not free. Free. You are free in Christ. Jesus is telling all of us we are free because He has set us free according to the plan of the Father. The freedom that we have does not change based on our behaviors or actions. It is eternal. It is constant. It is protected by God. But we often forget it. Or we become overwhelmed with the old lies of our old father telling us, you're not really free. You're still a, a sinner. You're still kind of a scumbag. I know Jesus is telling you you're free, but you're not. And so what it takes for us to keep the understanding of freedom before us is really just a steady diet of truth. A steady diet of truth. The mark of truth in verses 39-47. through 47. At the mark of freedom, now the mark of truth. So the dialogue here between Jesus and the Jews dials up. The tension rises. Right, It's real thick. Jesus claims the truth and the Jews are now contesting His claims of truth. So you have this interaction. The Jews say, verse 39, Well, Abraham is our father. Jesus responds to them, If you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is what Abraham did. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So if you were children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. You would not seek to kill Jesus, the one who has heard from and does the works of God, just as Abraham did. Abraham did the works of God. He was obedient to God's Word. Abraham did not seek to punish or put to, uh, wrongfully put to death anyone who spoke or believed the truth of God. Abraham's obedience and trust in God was so abiding in him that he was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. These Jews are not believing Jesus' words in the same way that Abraham believed God's words to be true. And so he says, instead, you are children of a different sort, doing the works of your father, the devil. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So the Jews are here making this defense. We are legitimate sons of Abraham. We can pull up Ancestry.com and show you how we are sons and daughters of Abraham. And along the way, there is no immorality that has taken place. Our lineage is true. It's pure in every way. We're pure sons of Abraham. 
We are true sons of Abraham. Our Father, therefore, is God. And so Jesus responds in 42, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I came from God and I am He. I came not of My own accord, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear My word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus brings the truth a little bit more explicitly, right? A time for defining terms here. Who's your daddy? Is basically what's going on here. And so we have Jesus' Father. He's saying, I came from Him. He sent me. If you love my Father, you would also listen to me. You would love me. The words that I speak are my Father's words, but you can't stand to hear them because you have a different Father. I know who your daddy is. I know who your Father is. So it's time to reveal the truth. Your Father is the devil. The devil. And I'm sure they just, the Jews just took that real nicely. They just, oh, please do tell. You are of Him. You are spiritual offspring of Him. You are His children because you listen to Him and you do His will. You desire to kill me. You desire to murder me because your father is a murderer just like he was in tempting Adam and Eve and bringing sin and death into the world. He had no problem ending the life of Job's family. He's a murderer. He has been from the beginning, and you are just like him, seeking now to destroy my life. You can't even convict me of sin. You say I have broken the Sabbath. You say I have broken the law, but you can't wholly prove that I have sinned in that way. You only believe lies because your father is the prince of lies. Just like He twisted the Word just enough to deceive Adam and Eve, so He is twisting Judaic belief and the Torah just enough to make you think that you're actually believing God the Father, but you really are not. You're believing the devil. Ouch. Church, your Father in heaven is true. The Father you once followed is a liar. Just that simply put. Jesus tells us we have the the ability to distinguish really the sound of the voice of our Father versus the sound of the Father of this world. Does your eternal adopted Father in heaven have your ear? Do you hear Him? Do you listen to Him? Do you hear His voice? And I'm not talking like in some weird audible kind of way, but in the sense of, Do you hear Him? Do you believe Him? Do you abide in His Word? Do you desire to obey Him? Or do you desire to obey your former abusive lying father who once ruled over you? What sort of wounds might you still have in your soul that are need of being healed by your Father in Heaven? Because when you live under the old father, there are no doubt wounds and scars and abuse. And when you come into life in Christ, this is why He's called the healer. Because now you begin to be healed of those wounds. And granted, we're not just victims of the devil. The devil's not what made us sin. He helped us. He enticed us in our own fleshly and sinful desires. But they don't just go away overnight. There's a progression, a sanctification that occurs in our life. This is why the Word is to be an abiding Word, a persevering Word, that it changes 
changes us over time. So the old father we had inflicted wounds. Under that old way, there was wounds. And some of you still have not been healed of those wounds. What sort of lies from your former father did you believe for so long that they still haunt you? They still cause you to question your Father in Heaven? What sort of sins entice you and sometimes seem more appealing than the righteousness of your Father? Today is the day you can move forward in truth. That's what it means to continue to be free is to stand on truth. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you leading you to the truth. And you can either walk in step with the Spirit or you can reject it and fall into sin, move straight into sin, and then experience shame and guilt. But that's not what the Father has called you to. The Father has equipped you, saints. He has equipped you with the power to overcome. A word that is true and the ability to put those old habits to death. Those old deeds and enticements. He has the power to heal the wounds through the blood of His Son, Jesus. Just abide in His Word. Trust them to be true. Put them into motion. Into your mind is true. And especially as a Reformed community, we love to just kind of hang on the depravity of man. We love to beat that drum. I'm just a sinner, just a sinner, just a sinner. But here, we have to understand that we are sons and daughters of the living God. We have the power residing in us to overcome sin. To no longer be enslaved to sin. And when we do sin, there is grace for us. So instead of just sitting here all the time talking about how depraved we are, why don't we talk about how righteous and holy we are now because of the blood of Jesus? Move forward in holiness. Move forward in righteousness. Give no opportunity to the flesh. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't make excuses every time you sin and mess up, if you will. Turn to the Lord. Press into the Lord and understand there is grace and forgiveness. I'm not perfect. I know you're not perfect. And that's okay. We can fumble through this together. But let's talk more about who we are in Christ than the old identity we had with our father, the devil. Like a child that runs to the arms of their father, knowing and trusting they are safe in their arms, that they're dearly loved, you and I are to constantly run to the Father in Heaven. Knowing He wants to bathe us in His grace and truth. He desires to tell you in your ear, Son, trust Me. I have you. You can go and be free because I have made you free. Don't fear anymore. And what I'm saying to you is true. So trust Me and now go. And when you can trust the Word of your Father that it is true, it not only leads you to living in the freedom He has given, but it leads you to rejoicing. The mark of rejoicing. Freedom, truth, rejoicing. The Bible has this narrative of truth that God is coming and He'll save His people from their sins. This is something that rings true throughout the entirety of the Bible. And it is... That truth that causes so many to rejoice, to sing songs of gladness. For Paul, even in the New Testament, to say that he counts all of his sufferings as joy for the sake of knowing Christ. And there's been debate up to this point, and there is much more debate in the verses to follow, but there is a crescendo to this debate that John's Gospel wants you to see. Abiding in the words of Christ are true. It will lead you to an ultimate place of rejoicing and gladness. This isn't merely a debate between Jesus and the Jews. This is a plea for the Jews to rejoice and be glad in what the Bible rejoices in. That is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. So the Jews respond in verse 48. They answered Him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
This kind of seems out of left field. There's not a whole lot of clear understanding as to why they called Jesus a Samaritan. But there was belief that Samaritan belief was demonically influenced in the way that they took a lot of the Old Testament and twisted its meaning and application. So it's very possible that they're just saying, you're just like the Samaritans. You are inspired by demons, not God. In verse 49, Jesus responds, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Demons are by design dishonoring to God and dishonoring to His Word. They are subject to their leader, the devil. And not only are demons dishonoring to God, they are self-glorifying creatures. This is not who Jesus is. Jesus honors the Father. He has shown that throughout His life and ministry. And not only that, He does not seek His own glory. He has said that numerous times. It is the judge, the supreme authority and author of life, the Father who seeks the glory of the Son to honor Jesus. We see this elsewhere, Philippians 2, verse 6. Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or robbed. In other words, Jesus in His life and laying down His life for the saints never sought to rob God the Father of His glory in any way, shape, or form. Instead, He honored the Father, gloried the Father in everything that He did, including His death and resurrection. And why would the Father seek to glorify the Son? Why? Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Everything about Jesus and all His glory is a reflection of the Father. And so the Father then glorifying the Son or honoring the Son is ultimately the Father revealing His glory to the Jews and the whole earth. It's a beautiful picture. So truly, Jesus says, He speaks of the Father as the judge. He speaks of Him in terms of the eternal judge and the judge who will determine the eternal destiny of everyone. And so when Jesus says those who abide in Him ultimately will never see death, Jesus is speaking not of a physical death this side of heaven, but He's speaking of a day when people will come before the eternal judge. And the only thing that will acquit them of eternal death, that eternal punishment from sin, is to believe in or abide in the Word of Jesus. So the Jews respond in 52, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? The Jews are missing it again. Missing what Jesus is saying. Believing Jesus is speaking only in physical terms. And so he responds in 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I did, do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is saying, I'm not self-glorifying. If I was, I'd be nothing. I know the Father. I can't tell you that I don't know the Father. If so, then I would be a liar. And your father Abraham, the person back in the book of Genesis, he rejoiced he would see my day. And this word rejoice is to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement to be extremely 
joyful, to be overjoyed, to rejoice greatly. That's why kids on your paper, the person maybe that you've drawn who's come out of jail, you see them rejoicing. That's the idea here. But Abraham is not here in the time of Jesus. And that's ultimately going to be the question. But Jesus says these words that are true, that Abraham had rejoiced to see his this day. So how do we see that? Does the Bible give us any indication or reason Abraham would rejoice in the way regarding Jesus? This is where Scripture helps interpret Scripture. If we were to jump back into the book of Genesis chapter 22, you see that story of Abraham taking his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, the one that God gave to him in his old age, the one through whom God promised your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I want you to offer him on an altar. To sacrifice him, excuse me. Hebrews chapter 11 clues us in to what was going through Abraham's mind. Because it doesn't seem, it just seems out of whack for God to say, sacrifice your son. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham never lost faith. He trusted. Hebrews 11 tells us that he knew that if he sacrificed his son Isaac, that God would even raise Isaac up from the dead because he knew that God would have to fulfill his promise to fill and subdue the earth. So he was going to follow through and kill his son ultimately. But the Bible tells us back in or in Galatians 3.16, that Paul talks about God promising an offspring to Abraham. And not an offspring as in plural, but as an offspring as in singular. Galatians 3.16. Meaning then that Abraham knew all the way back in the book of Genesis that there was going to be a Messiah. There was going to be a Christ. There was going to be an anointed one who would come and save his people from their sins. He didn't know all the particulars. In all the details, but he knew that that's what God was going to do. So then, therefore, when he would take his son Isaac up, he thought, well, God is true, and I know this. I'm going to follow through with this, and somehow, in some way, God is going to make this happen. And as we know the story, God stops him from offering his son Isaac. We also know in Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek. The only time Melchizedek is mentioned in the Bible is when Abraham goes to him offering him his money as an offering. Abraham was aware that God had a greater and grander plan of redemption. He would glory in seeing that day. What does it mean that he saw his day? There's no telling exactly. We know he foresaw his day, if that's the right tense there. But he, he looked forward to that day. But maybe because he was dead, he was able to now realize Christ in his fullness, right? But the Bible shows us that Jesus was not just some afterthought, but it was a plan from the beginning all through Scripture. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, Jesus, and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is supreme claim to deity. There's no mincing of words here. Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, or I will be. (laughs) I am. A very clear claim to deity. The I am who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush is very clear who Jesus is saying he is. And it is very clear to the Jews who Jesus is claiming himself to be. There's no mixing up of anything. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, and this is a prayer of Moses, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus from everlasting to everlasting. The God of Moses standing before these Jews right here. 
And what do they do? They drop down to their knees and they worshiped him. They praised him. Oh, thank God, I didn't know who you were. No, verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews would be right. According to Leviticus 24, verse 16, there is the prescription for stoning someone who is committing blasphemy. And of Instead of just an instant stoning, it would require some trial first. But the problem here is that Jesus is not blaspheming. He's speaking the truth. He will stand trial here soon enough, but not yet. And the last piece of imagery here is astounding, really. I mentioned to you last week, Jesus could, as He's standing in the court of women or the treasury, Jesus could just walk into the inner parts of the sanctuary. He could go in. He could go where the altar is. He could go in into the Holy of Holies. And He could go in and not be struck dead. And the full glory of God could consume and fill that place and just put everybody in awe and drop them down to their knees. But He doesn't do that. Instead here, this sort of sorrowful picture Just like ancient Israel, when the glory of God came over the tabernacle, and then the glory of God came over the temple, and later on departed from the temple, so now here we see again the glory of God departing from the temple. Jesus, the full radiance of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that covered the temple, that covered the tabernacle, here standing in the presence of these Jews, now departing this place again. But the good news is, He would return. And He would return forever to stay, to dwell forever. Do you understand that you are able to see Jesus like Abraham saw Jesus? Abraham was 2,000 years before Jesus. We're 2,000 years after Jesus. Neither of us have seen Him, physically seen Him, His life on this earth. So how is it that we could see Jesus just like Abraham could see Jesus? The answer is faith. Faith. The assurance of things hoped for. Faith faith in the same exact promises that were given in Scripture even to Abraham. We believe the same things Abraham does. Therefore, we have also seen Him. And we know Him. We abide in Him because He first has abided in us. And the glory of God that left that temple that day has come upon us through faith. We have the eternal presence of God. The dwelling of God is in us. We are the living, breathing temple of God with the glory of God with us all the time. And this glory will never leave us. We can't do anything. We can't say anything that will cause this glory to depart this temple ever again. He is with us forever. We have the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. He is with us forever. This is a beautiful mark of being a disciple. And so now we are being taken from one degree of glory to another until one day that glory and our faith becomes perfect sight. And so therefore, we have all the reason to be confident in our adoption as sons and daughters. All the reason to rejoice because of what He has done. There's one other thing I want to share that could encourage your soul. You and I are able to rejoice not just simply because He has set us free and because He is the truth, but because the Father has shown us how to rejoice. We rejoice because it's what the Father does. It's what our Savior does. Your adopted Father in Heaven doesn't just call you to freedom but to rejoice as He rejoices over you. I'm going to end this sermon showing you that sort of rejoicing in a reading from Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 14, about 650 plus years before 
the ministry of Jesus before he was even on the scene. This is during the time of King Josiah. Just before they go into captivity, God makes this really this decree through the prophet that you're going to be judged, but ultimately there's going to come a day of true freedom, freedom from sin. And so I want, I want this word to just wash over you. Allow it to encourage your soul. To remind you of the beautiful adoption you have as a son or as a daughter of the Father. And how you now have the eternal markings of a true disciple. The markings of freedom. The markings of truth. The markings of rejoicing. Listen to the Word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He said again, this is the Father who saves you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. 